0: Hello, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland and we're here at School Psych Podcast tonight to talk about stats. A really fun topic for me anyways. I know (laughs) a lot of people think it's boring, but I'm excited. Um, But I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca and she's going to tell us a little bit about how you guys can participate tonight. Rebecca?
1: Yes, hello everyone. I am a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut and um, I'm going to remind you how to participate. You can, if you are watching live right now, you can log into your YouTube account um, and once you're signed in, you can comment right alongside the video in the chat. Um, in the chat box on YouTube. You can also um, comment um, if you're watching this recorded later. You can comment under the YouTube video by signing in. And you can comment if you're hearing us in some other way on Twitter using the hashtag psychedpodcast or on the Facebook pages School Psyched, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psych podcast page. You can comment right on the page under the last post, which was about the podcast, or you can message me. I'll be looking for notifications. And here's Eric.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Eric, and I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut as well. And we're excited to have Dr. Bojan back. And um, just to remind everybody just a little bit about him, he's an associate professor of psychology at Baylor University in Waco, Texas and is a prolific scholar. He's published two books on latent variable models, more than 80 articles and book chapters in peer-reviewed scientific outlets, and he's presented more than 80 papers, posters, slash posters at professional conferences. Um, In 2016, he was listed as one of the most prolific faculty members in non-doctoral school psychology programs across the nation, and has won research awards from the American Academy of Health Behavior, American Psychological Association, School Psychology Division, Mensa Education and Research Foundation, and Society for Applied Multivariate Research. Uh, he presented a wonderful podcast um, to us back in the spring as well. And um, so we want to continue that. And one of the things that I uh, thought was just brilliantly funny um, and uh, And impressive was just the notion he mentioned that we've been bamboozled. And uh, I sort of went away with that term um, and really just got a kick out of it because uh, there are things that we've been bamboozled about. And we really appreciate uh, Dr. Bojans presenting to us. We did a little poll that was kind of fun and funny, uh, that was just uh, on the Facebook page asking people what they want to learn more about. um, And there were some funny Uh, options for us to choose from Uh, but here we are ready to learn again from uh, Dr. Bojan and want to learn more about what we've been bamboozled about and how we can account for variance in uh, the assessments that we give for students.
3: Well thank you all for having me back uh, again. Um, I appreciate the opportunity here and hopefully um, I can um, help you all learn something or um, and um, or y'all can help me um, learn some stuff as well. Um, Last time when I stopped, um, I didn't quite get to uh, grade equivalent scores. And so my uh, idea here is I'm gonna finish um, that module up just so that, um, you know, I know that's a question that folks have um, and then maybe discuss a little bit, you know, the difference between grade equivalent scores and grade norms. Um, those things sometimes get um, entertained although they're extremely different um, concepts and then um, if there's questions to um, ask, um, i'd be happy to do some Q and A um, If not, then I have some other things um, I can talk about as well. so I always um, you know tell my students you know they have the opportunity to ask questions, but if they don't then i will then I assume that that means they want me to talk more about about what I 'm interested in talking about. so um, I guess we can kind of take the same idea here. Um, so I'm going to um, share this. All right, there we go. Um, and so um, the, the whole idea behind grade equivalent scores is to assess growth. That's the whole reason that they were developed um, and, and used. Um, it's to assess change um, in individuals so it's really common um when we're wanting to not measure um things in psychology are the attributes here um, you know sometimes we just want to know a picture of where an individual is at right now and you know we kind of call it a day other times you want to know well how do they change from time point one to time point two to time point three etc whether it's um you know from grade three to grade four or beginning of the intervention, middle of the intervention, end of the intervention. We want to know what change it looks like, and that was kind of the impetus behind grade equivalent scores. Um, if you remember from last time, we talked about um, you know norm reference scores and sometimes content reference scores. They both have some difficulty in getting at change. So if you use um, like IQ scores, T scores. Um, et cetera, and you want to measure growth or you want to measure change over some, you know, time period, that's difficult to do. Um, so with norm reference scores, they just do not assess change very well. Um, what, happen, uh, what happens is, if you remember I talked about last time, that, you know, the IQ score metric or T scores or, you know, whatever, um, you know, units that are on a, thir- on a norm reference unit, Um, They're really kind of giving you rank orders or relative positions among um, an individual's peers. And for many psychological attributes, those tend to be stable over time. So, um, you know, their fluid reasoning or their verbal comprehension, whatever attribute of interest there, those tend to be relatively, their rank orders tend to be relatively stable over time. Um, And so when you're looking at those, you know, rank order type scores, you want to see change over time you're, you're very apt to see that they're relatively stagnant, but, you know, within a particular instrument. Um, so what, for, um, an individual's, uh, norm reference score to change over time, what has to happen is that the individual has to change at a faster rate than the norming scale or the norming sample. Um, and that's not unheard of, but it's not, you know, the most common thing to have happen. So if you want to, if at time point one, you know, they have the IQ score, um, you know, of 100 and time point two, they have, a, you know, IQ um, scale score of 105. It means that they've changed faster than, you know, what um, it was expected from the from the norming sample, um, you know, and so that's um, not the most common thing to have happen. Um, and so what we need is our other um, ways to get at, at growth. Um, from a content um, reference perspective, um, those values tend to be qualitative descriptors, and those also aren't um, usually very good at, at getting at growth. The reason for that is that you often have to um, have your raw score or, or skilled score, whatever, meet a certain threshold before you change categories. So, you know, to go from, you know, um, um, you know below proficiency to proficient, you know, you're, typically there's a, a range of scores within those qualitative categories. And so someone may actually be growing, but they don't haven't grown enough to change categories. Um, And so both of those tend to be a little bit problematic when you want to look at change over time. And so that was really the impetus for grade equivalent scores being developed. Um, So what a grade equivalent score is, it's, um, you know, just defined. It's a um, a, you're taking a score that already exists, whether it be a raw score, or raw score, have you there. um, And you're figuring out what's the grade level, um, you know, for that particular score. which usually kind of defined as, as the median score. Um, for a particular grade, sometimes it can be the mode, or sometimes it can be the, um, you know, um, arithmetic mean. But usually, it, it's the um, median score there. So, um, that's uh, I got that from John Flanagan. He wrote in, um, you know, a, a long time ago, um, about what that is. Unfortunately, if you look up grade equivalent scores on the internet or whatever textbook, you'll see lots and lots of, um, you know, um, opinions about them, but. That it, there's not a whole lot of materials that um, are provided about how you actually calculate them. Um, and many of the um, information from them comes from the um, Hieronymus and some of the other folks from the um, um, Iowa um, Test of Basic Skills camp. And a lot of those materials just aren't available o- online. Um, if you have a really diligent in a library loan department, they can sometimes get those materials for you. But outside of that, no, they're just um, not easy to, to come by. So I've kind of put together a little bit of stuff here just to kind of give folks an idea about how great equivalent scores um, are actually um, calculated there. So what they do is they estimate some um, attribute level on a developmental continuum. So whereas norm reference scores just look at how does an individual perform based on you know his or her same age peers or sometimes same grade peers, but it's a very restricted um, norm group whereas grade-equivalent scores look at multiple groups, so it's on a continuum of of peers. So you can kind of think of it as having multiple peer groups that you're comparing a a given um, score to, all right? Um, And again, they were uh, designed as an alternative to the norm-reference scores, which, um, you know, when these came on the scene in the mid-20th century, you know, um, um, this was a a very um, nice alternative to using the norm-reference score. Um, just as an, uh, an example of how you would interpret that, um, you know, so let's say Ariel got a score of 36. And you can tell where, you know, my kids are very much into Disney princesses, so you can see where I get the, some of these names from. Um, so um, you know, she earned a score of 36, you know, a raw score, raw score. And that 36 is happens to be the median score of students that are in the seventh month of fourth grade. Um, and so that means that Ariel's grade equivalent score is 4.7. So that's what the four. Um, that's what the integer component means of those, and then the decimal component. Um, so the integer component means the grade, and then the decimal component means what month of school. And usually they start off with August being, you know, first, and then September second, you know, et cetera, there. Um, so that's all that, you know, a grade equivalent score actually means. So the general process for calculating or creating them first, you have to administer um, one instrument or multiple equated instruments to students in the desired grade. So you have to, give a common instrument to students in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. Um, and if you think about the process of doing that, um, especially for an achievement test, that's not an easy thing because what's going to be, um, you know, in the zone of development for a third grader is going to be way too easy for a typically developing, you know, fifth grader, sixth grader, et cetera. So you have content um, on your instrument that covers a wide variety of grades. Um, or the alternative is that you have multiple forms for each grade, but then you have some type of linking um, items that you, so you can link the third grade to the fourth grade to the fifth grade, etc. Um, but one way or the other, you have to have some type of instrument that is given to um, a variety of students in and multiple multiple grades. Um, and so, whether you administered one instrument or multiple instruments, then you link them. Then you have to take the scores from the um, different uh, students in the different grades, and then you have to um, put them onto um, a single scale. Um, Peterson called this an interim scale score, but all this means is that it's a score that's applied to students from every grade. So the third graders, the fourth graders, the fifth graders, sixth graders—they'd all have scores on this particular scale, um, you know, and uh, from the um, you know variety of items that they were administered there, right? And then that interim scale is largely going to be used to rank order the students, um, you know, because what you want to do is see well how well they performed. Um, not only across the whole, you know, multiple grades, but also within a grade, um, you know, how well a particular value was there. Um, And so this is an example. Um, You can see here on the left are different grades. Um, And then there in the second column is the median um, 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 interim uh, score scale. And you can see this comes from, I think, um, one of the um, Iowa Test of Basic Skills um, um, results. Because they're they're one of the... um, um, Biggest users of the grade equivalent scores um, today. So you can kind of see that as you go from third grade to fourth grade, there's more, um, you know, uh, items or there's there's higher values um, on that interim score scale. And you can pretty much think of those, in in this case, these are uh, equivalent to raw scores. And so uh, because these were administered in January, um, these instruments were administered in January, that means that these are the grade equivalent scores of 3.5 3.5 or 4.5 or 5.5, because January would be the, the, the fifth month. Yeah, um, I think it's January is the, the fifth month there. Um, and then to the right of that, you can see um, the the percentile or percentile rank. So um, for the, th- third, the, um, the third grade students who took this, um, about 50 percent got a score of 12.1 um, or, or lower and then um you know about uh um 50 of the um fourth graders got a score of 15.6 or lower and then you can you know go up into the eighth grade and see that about about 50 got a grade of 23.8 or lower on that same interim scale score so you can look and see within or between grades what um you know how folks did you can also look at you know within a particular grade um you know how well um you know students um you know did so you can see that about 70%, um, you know, of the students, um, you know, in the fourth grade um, got a score of 12.1 or, 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 or um, about ten percent of the students got a score of, you know, 12.1. Um, you know, there's that if you look at the, the last row and then that 4.5 column, that I mean that shows you about 70% of the fourth grade students again in in the um you know fifth month here we're able to get that score of twelve point one or or higher or got something you know equivalent there so fourth grade students tend to do a little bit better than the third grade students um you know and likewise you can see that you know for fifth grade about eighty eight percent were able to get a score of at least twelve point one you know on there so that's how you would look at that particular um, table there and see well how well are folks doing and because this is a you know nationally administered test with lots and lots of support with that this is going in the direction that you expect it to go and that as you go to the right the values tend to get higher and as you go up um, you know the values tend to get a little bit lower so um, you know if you go in the third 3.5 column and you go start at grade three then you go to grade four grade five grade six those are getting lower um, you know up there because you wouldn't expect you know third graders to get 23 point8 you know items correct um, which are, which is the typical performance of an of an eighth grader so, but there are, there were some third graders because that, that top value is 0.09, it's not zero. So there were some third graders that were able to score about, um, you know, as well as, um, you know, eighth graders, the typical eighth grade performance um, or typical um, eighth graders able to perform. Um, but they are very few and, and, and far between. So this is what a typical, um, you know, first step um, is here with making the grade equivalent scores. Um, the step five then is to calculate um, the um, um, the the oh yes is to calculate the um, values for the intermediate um, grade levels. And what that means is you're going to look and see well we have grades we have um, values at you know the fifth month for third grade the fifth month for fourth grade the fifth month for fifth grade et cetera. But what happens if we want you know the eighth month for third grade or we want the second month for fourth grade? Um, so what we have to do is we have to interpolate what those values are. And you can do that by um plotting what the you know percentiles were for each grade. And then in red here, you see I kind of have linked the values. So on the right, you can see I see the median value um, of the interim scores. So in that red line kind of plots the average value for all the for the different um, grades. So it starts with the third grade, then the fourth grade, fifth grade, et cetera, there. And then the black lines give you the um, you know, the percentiles within a particular grade. Um, so this um, black line kind of tells you what, you know, performance looks like within a grade. The red line tells you, um, you know, what performance looks like between grades. And then you would kind of use this red line to kind of guide you to figure out, um, you know, what would a typical performance be for a fourth grade student in the eighth month or, uh, you know, fifth grade student in the second month. You would just use this kind of red line to interpolate what those values are. So far, there's really nothing terribly, you know, uh, problematic with this. Um, the, the next step is where the problematic uh, component comes, and that comes with finding values for extra media or outside grade levels. So if we administer this in this particular example, we administer the um, um, the instrument to third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders sixth, graders, sixth graders, seventh grade, eighth graders. But then we want to extrapolate, well, what would scores be like for first graders? What would scores be like for ninth graders? Um, You know, and so that's where the problem or some of the problems are because this test was not actually administered to second graders, not actually administered to first graders, wasn't administered to ninth graders. Yet we want to extrapolate out to what that what we um, expect those scores to be had we administered, you know, the the, um, instrument to them, Um, because for third graders that score really, really low, we want to extrapolate to see what, you know, their score, um, what grade level those scores kind of would map onto. So we would say that, oh, maybe a third grader who performed a particular low has a you know grade equivalent score of 1.9 or 2.4 or something along those lines. But first graders or second graders never were administered this particular instrument. So there's can be some problems um, with that. And then the last step is to calculate the grade equivalent values from these uh, scores. And that um involves you know finding, you know, using this line, this blue and red line here to figure out what are the uh, median values. Um, You know, for a particular raw score or or, or interim score there um, across, you know, all possible um, scores that students um, obtained. So that's the general process of calculating grade equivalent scores. Um, There's nothing really wrong is that maybe the extrapolation can cause some issues. There's not really anything wrong with the grade equivalent scores per se. The problem with them is that they have a really strong propensity for misinterpretation because they're on that grade um, or ostensibly, they're on a grade uh, metric. People um, often um, um, misinterpret them as um, representing information that they don't actually represent. So, grade equivalent scores do not tell you um, where a student should be placed in the um, you know grade of a of a school. So, a student gets you know a grade equivalent score of um, you know let's say six point five you know in the um, you know fifth month of the sixth grade. It doesn't mean that the student can do work um, you know of a sixth grader so if a third grader um, gets a score of 6.5 it does not mean that that third grader can do sixth grade work so it doesn't tell you where a student should be placed likewise it doesn't tell you if the student has the academic skills for a specific grade so you can't look and say oh look you know across all these academic domains the third grader was getting you know a, you know fourth grade equivalent fifth grade equivalent etc they probably can do fourth grade work or fifth grade work etc That's not what these um, instruments tell you. That's not what a grade equivalent score can tell you. If you want to look at um, accelerating a student, you you know, or having them skip um, upgrades, you need to get different types of information than just looking at grade equivalent scores. So that's where the problem comes with these grade equivalent values is that not necessarily the, the scores in and of themselves, but it's their strong propensity for misinterpretation. In fact, the problem got so bad that in, in, in the early 1980s, the International Reading Association actually made a resolution um, to um, tell standardized, um, you know, um, creators of standardized reading tests to abandon the practice of reporting grade equivalent scores. They actually published this in their um, little little journal there, and they made a resolution there. Obviously, it didn't, you know, pick up a whole lot because they're still, you know, in, in great use today. But you can see how problematic. Um, you know, the, the, these can be if an uh, if, uh, if organization is making these resolutions that they should just be completely abandoned, um, you know, then they can, um, you know, be um, a, a bit problematic. Now, I don't really have um, a slides here for um, the, um, the grade uh, norms, um, but grade norms are something that are quite a, a bit different. Um, grade norms are very, uh, they're norm reference scores. So um they're very equivalent they're similar to um, what I talked about last time, in that you know let's say you want a you know reading um, you know score and you want their grade you um, want to uh, um, get someone's um value on a, on a grade norm, you're going to go through all the same steps that you would with a norm reference score. only difference is that your norm group isn't going to be based on how old someone is you know with chronological age, it's going to be based on what grade they're in. So, whereas um, when you use age as your, um, you know, norming group, you can have, you know, let's say we're going to use, you know, the uh, um, uh, five-year-olds that are, um, you know, about five uh, um, years and, and six months, um, you know, within that particular range, you're probably going to have students from multiple grades. There's going to be some students in there that, um, you know, aren't in kindergarten yet, um, you know, because their parents decided to hold them back for a year. You're going to have some students in there that, you know, maybe in kindergarten, you got some students there that may possibly be in, um, you know, first grade, if they started off a, a, a little bit early there. So um, within a particular age, you're going to have multiple grades. So if you look at the grade norms for a particular grade, so let's say, you know, kindergarten, um, you know, the, um, you know, the um, fourth or fifth month, you know, there, you're going to have students with multiple ages. So if you're going to take a, you know, kindergarten, you know, mid-year, you're going to have some students that are five years old, um, you're going to have some students that are six years old, um, you know, so you're going to have a variety of ages within a particular grade. So what all that grade um, norms do is they look and see how well, you know, if you take a raw score and you compare it to um, same age peers, But same age peers in this case are um, folks that are um, uh, of the same grade. Um, so, you know, it'd be all kindergarten students in their fifth month or what have you there. And those are entirely separate from grade equivalent scores. So, so- you, Oh, go ahead.
0: Question. So when we're dealing with, yeah, um, grade norms, so so achievement tests that that give to, to, um, you know, you can run the norms through age or grade, you know, thinking about the Woodcock-Johnson or the Wyatt. um, Is there a best practice? Should we be using one or the other? It just depends on the referral concerns. I hear, I see a lot of um, people that just say, well, I just use age because that's what I've been taught. And so I was just wondering the reasoning uh, what, how do you know what to p- to
3: pick, I guess? <laughs> they, they give you d- different pieces of information, just like percentiles give you different pieces of information than, um, you know, if you look on the Woodcott Johnson, you know, they give you like the RPI. They give you the percentiles. They'll give you, um, you know, a variety of different scores. So there's not one that's necessarily better than the other. They just give you different pieces of, of information. So grade equivalents are going to tell you, um, you know, what does a typical student in that particular grade um, what are they able to do, um, you know, whereas age, um, you know, norms are going to tell you what's a student of that particular age, um, you know, typically able to do. So if you're looking at age norms, you have to realize that there are students um, in multiple grades in that same age group. So, you know, you may have, you know, for, a, um, you know, a, um, a five-year-old, you know, six, seven month, you may have some that are, um, you know, preschool, you may have some that are in kindergarten, um, you know, so for a given age, you're going to have students across multiple grades for grade norms for a given grade, um, you know, a group. So let's say, you know, kindergarten, fifth month, sixth month, et cetera. You're going to have students of multiple ages. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my kids are in um, kindergarten now and they have students in there that um, that, um, you know, turned five, you know, before, um, um, you know, almost a, a, a year ago. And so they're, you know, um, you know, six plus. Um, then you have students that just turned five maybe in June or July. Um, you know, so there's almost like a year's difference in in, in age, but they're in the exact same grade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so with grade norms, um the the um the issue is that you know if you select on if you condition it if you're conditioned on a particular um grade, you're gonna have a variety of of ages within there. Mm-hmm. Um so they just tell you different pieces of information and they had different pros and, and cons with them. Um so I wouldn't say that necessarily one is better than the other, they just give you different pieces of information. Um, what
0: about um, in cases with retention? Um, I'm thinking that grade would in some situations be more appropriate if if the student hasn't been exposed to, you know, third grade curriculum and whatnot because they were retained in first grade. So w- it would make more sense to me that I probably don't want to compare them to, you know, ki- does that make sense? Or um,
3: well, uh, um, uh, again, they're giving me different pieces of information. You know, if you, if you select on a particular age, you're going to have people from multiple grades. Likewise, if you select on a particular grade, you have people from multiple ages in there. And so even if a student is retained, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no one else in that particular age group or no one else in that particular grade group that's the same as that particular student. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at nationally, you know, if you condition on, you know, the first grade, first month, or have you there, there's a variety of ages within that grade. Likewise, if you look at, you know, just all six year olds, you know, um, you know, zero months, one month, what have you there, there's going to be a lot of different or a variety of different grades there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know that retention necessarily, uh, if a student has been retained at, all of a sudden, one of those norm groups all of a sudden becomes a better one to look at. They just give you again different pieces of of information. Very likely, unless the student's been retained multiple times, there's going to be students in the normative group in either the age um, um, group or the uh, um, the grade group um, that matches them.
0: And what about um, when we're doing score comparisons between IQ and achievement? Does that because I think that most of our IQ tests give age equivalent. I want to say maybe the WJ also allows for grade. but like, because we're comparing to age with the IQ, should we also be comparing to age with achievement? Or again, that's just different, different pieces of... Our- if
3: you're going to take that step and directly compare an IQ score to the um, um, achievement score, and I would only suggest you do that um, where, um, where the scores have been co-normed or there's some type of linking process done done there, then you want to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples. So you'd want to use the same normative group. Um, so you'd either use grade norms for both the IQ and achievement, or you'd use the age norms for both IQ and achievement. Now, typically um, IQ has been defined as according to same age peers as opposed to same grade peers, but theoretically there's nothing prohibiting you from looking at same grade when calculating, um, you know, IQ. It's just that when you go to write that up or go to interpret that, you're going to be very explicit that you use grade norms to calculate, you know, the cognitive scores, um, um, you know, as opposed to the age score. So it doesn't matter which one you use, you just have to be consistent and use the same norm group for both um, the IQ and, and achievement.
0: Gotcha. That makes sense as to um, yeah, if they're co-norm, that that would for sure be better. What about? I know. Um, I mean, that's ideal <laughs> to use. You know, the the WJ cog and the WJ achievement, or the the whisk and the Wyatt type of thing. Um, I, however, don't see that a lot in practice. At least in my district and reports that come to me, I generally see you know a whisk and a WJ, or you know that type of thing. So, I guess that's you're saying that that's not best practice. Um, and then would that that requirement for, um, them to be apples to apples, does that still hold or is that kind of a moot point being that we're, we're already comparing apples to oranges with whisk and WJ. Does that make
3: sense? Uh, It it makes sense. So the issue there is, um, what type of, um, of comparison do you want to do? If you want to do a qualitative comparison you just want to say, Oh, they're average on cognitive ability. They're below average on academic achievement. It really doesn't make a difference. You know you can use the wessler for the cognitive what got johnson for achievement or use the coppin for the you know uh, cognitive and use um you know some you know, the key math or whatever for achievement it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference if all you're doing is what i'm going to call qualitative you know comparisons there and they're saying that oh they're average or above average on the cognitive you know they're below um you know average on the or the achievement and you just call it a day there the problem comes when you say that oh they had a 112 on the on the WISC-5, and they had an 84 on the, you know, Woodcock-Johnson 4, oh, look, there's a, what, 20-some-odd point difference there. That's where the problem comes in, because that 20 points has no meaning at that point. Um, you can, um, uh, you can try to see if you can do that comparison. Um, a colleague and I, uh, Sean McLaughlin, wrote a paper for Applied Neuropsych talking about how you can, um, we didn't use the term linking, but you, how you can compare scores with different norm groups, you get basically it's using regression. So if um, the um, technical manuals have given you, um, you know, the correlations between the different instruments, they've kind of given you what the mean, the standard deviations are in those, um, you know, in the samples where they've given both, let's say the Woodcott Johnson and the WISC, um, then you can calculate what the expected score on the Woodcott Johnson should be given a score on the whisk. That's a very rough form of linking or equating um, the scores. Um, it's not like the high-tech version that you get with some of the educational um, um, measurement instruments, but it's a rough form of doing doing that linking there. And that'll allow you to kind of make more of a quantitative comparison. You could say, oh, that, you know, the 100 on the whisk is equivalent to like say, you know, a, a 95 on the Woodcott Johnson you know, then you, then you have to take into that account that they have different locations and then you can do a bit more quantitative type of comparison there.
0: Gotcha. So when I was in North Carolina, for example, they, um, my district had like a 15 point discrepancy was the criteria for LD. Um, so that's probably not ideal. I mean, um, it, using the, those regression tables in the in the manuals would probably have been, I mean, not that I'm going to change North Carolina's, you know, (laughs) how they, how they do things, but that's probably not super psychometrically sound. Correct.
3: Yes. Unless you have, unless there's been some empirical evidence linking the, um, the scores together, um, you know, you're, um, 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 putting a whole lot, you have a huge amount of assumptions going into comparing those and, and, and even um, more than that saying that, Oh, the 15 point difference or whatever point difference is meaningful um, because you don't know, because, you know, uh, you know, when you, if you look at temperature, like from a a Kelvin to a centigrade, those units are not equivalent. They're getting at the same attribute, but the units are not equivalent. You have a, a very similar situation. If you're using the whisk and the Woodcott Johnson, unless you have some way to link those scores, you have no idea whether those units are actually comparable um, or, or not. So a 15 point difference could be meaningless or it could be, it's a huge amount of difference in, 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 the attributes. You just don't know unless there's been some type of empirical evidence to show, um, you know, given their score on this instrument, what do you expect them to get on another instrument?
0: Okay. Awesome. That's a, that's a great analogy. And I feel like that it kind of um, cleared some of that up for me. So um When you're, so there isn't really a way to compare, like say, you know, they got this score on the key math and this score on the WJ. There isn't a way to figure out are those different, are they the same, um, if we don't have those tables or that research, right? It's totally
3: quantitatively correct. Qualitatively, you could say they're both in the average range, they're both below average, et cetera. But if you want, there's no way to directly compare those values. Um, And that's part of the problem with psychological measurement is that, you know, um, this goes, traces it history back to Thorndike and at Woodsworth there that they said, Oh, we want to combine these scores. And so we're going to make them look as if they're the same, um, you know, units there by having those mean deviation, you know, standard deviation scores, um, um, you know, but they're really not directly comparable um, in, in many instances.
0: Okay. And, and then my other question is like, why, why are we taught this in grad school? Like, I feel like the more I'm in this field, the more I'm like, Oh, that was wrong. I was taught that. And that was wrong. Like, to me, in my stats class, like, I don't think I recall anyone saying, hey, you can't really at least don't do that. <laughs> okay. That kills me, but.
3: <laughs> um, uh, I, I mean, uh, that could they look on the surface like they're directly comparable? Because they're, they're in the same, you know, quote unquote IQ units or T-score units or standard score units, et cetera there. So on the face of it, they look like they're directly comparable, except for the fact that they're not. I mean, they're directly comparable. That you can say that. Oh, an 85 on the Kaufman is a standard deviation below the mean. An 85 on the Woodcott Johnson is a standard deviation below the mean. So, in that sense, they're comparable. But you cannot say that an 85 on the Kaufman is has the same level of attribute as an 85 on the Woodcott Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where the problem uh, uh, arises. Is not necessarily in the numbers, but in the um, that next step of inference to saying that oh, well, this an 85 means the same level of the attribute across the instruments. Um, and that's where psychology has fallen down for the last hundred years. They've not mapped their numbers onto levels of the attribute well at all. There are some uh, exceptions to that rule, but for the most part we've not. Um, and part of that's due to just kind of taking Steven's word as, um, you know, being gospel that, Oh, he said you can basically by fiat, you know, determine, you know, the properties of an instrument and give whatever units you want to, to, to instruments um, without doing the, work behind that and figuring out what is this attribute does it make sense to actually put numbers to the attribute and if so what numbers should be placed there
0: okay super interesting I'm sorry to derail you from here
3: <laughs> oh no I um, I, I, I really uh, I mean it's a very I talk about that in, in class all, all the time but um, you know I'm, I'm teaching a measurement class in, in in the spring and that's we have a couple weeks on you know the issue with, with Stevens. In fact, Stevens' whole definition, where he came up with measurement, it was a backlash because the British Association for the Advancement of Science basically just um, um, censured him for you know um, not doing a very good job with his sewn scale and saying that oh well you really don't aren't measuring things you know so you, you're giving you're giving numbers but it's not really measurement and he was abhor I mean he just thought that was a horrible thing that they would call him out on that so much of his stuff on measurement was a backlash to. Um, the the British folks calling him out, you know, for that. And so, for whatever reason, the American psychologists largely ignored the precursor to Stevens's definition, and they've just kind of taken his definition as, as gospel. Oh,
0: interesting. <laughs> sure. Um, okay, I um, I'm looking at time, and uh, what do you want to do? Do you want to go a little bit and hit on a couple more concepts in your PowerPoint, or do you want to um, talk about some of the other stuff that? we wanted
3: to get to. Are, are there some questions? Uh, I mean, if there are other questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Otherwise I have other things. Um, I don't
0: think that there's questions that have come in, but I have my own questions because you know, that I come nerdily prepared for, for these things. Go for it. <laughs> um, just some of the things that, you know, we see on a regular basis posted in social media. Um, Cause I, I see the same questions posted again and again on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. And um so I'm thinking that there are kind of things that people don't have a strong understanding of or there's some confusion about. So can you talk a, a lot of times I see people say, oh, I've got, you know, a 60 and um, I've got all these index scores of 60 and 63 and 64. And then my composite score is a 52. Like why? Why are my indices higher than my composite score? Like, shouldn't that be an average? So wh- what's the reasoning for that?
3: Um, that's a little bit long story there. Um, before I say anything, I'll say that um Joel Schneider has written a very nice little technical, um, um, manual. I think it's for the Woodcott Johnson on that. And it's on his website. It's freely available. And you can go check that for the details there. Part of the long and short of it is that there's, there's different standard deviations with the composite score than there are with the, um, instrument scores going into that composite. And because all of these scores in psychology are norm reference, the majority of them are norm reference scores. Um, And so norm reference meaning that the unit or not the units, but the the values are going to be in reference to not only the the average, but also the standard deviation. Because the standard deviation changes, um, the standard deviation tends to be, um, you know, a bit um, larger in the um, um, in the individual scores than they are in the composite scores. That's the large reason why you get um, differences there is because. Um, you know, the standard deviations are different. And so if you have, you know, a five unit, um, you know, uh, so if, you're, if the average is 100 and you have a you know, score of 105, well, if your standard deviation is 15, that's going to look a lot different than if it's, you know, a standard deviation of 10 or a standard deviation of five. Um, so when that standard deviation shrink, which tends to happen with the composite scores, standard deviation tends to shrink, um, it means that you're going to have more extreme values um, for a given, you know, number of, uh, uh, for a given score. Um, deviation from the mean, if the standard deviation is smaller, it means that score is going to look more extreme. So that tends to be what happens with composite scores looking more extreme than, than had been expected is because the standard deviation there is a lot smaller and all these scores in psychology are based on standard deviation units. So standard deviation changes. And so therefore if the score looks more extreme, um, you know, at, for a composite than the, um, um, the scores that compose the composite.
0: All right, sounds good. And then I'm just going to go down my list, unless somebody chimes in and has um, others. But I definitely want to hear what you um, also what you feel are questions that come up periodically in the field. But um, Flynn effect, um, I think we all know, you know what the Flynn effect is, and um, we're concerned with maybe instruments that are getting a little bit older. So I'm thinking about the DOS-2 at like 13 years and the SB-5 at like 15 years. Should we be concerned about that? Or, you know, at what point do you stop using a test?
3: Um, That's uh, two different things there. When when you stop using a test, that's a very interesting question. And APA has completely just said it's up to clinicians. Um, You know, they, if you look at their ethics code, you know, they um, um, write it quite nebulously. And they basically say it's really up to clinicians to decide, A, when a test becomes too old, and B, when a new instrument comes out, when to switch over to the new instrument. They kind of leave it at the discretion of the clinicians within some reason. I mean, if a new instrument, a new edition comes out, and 20 years later, you're still using the previous one, that probably goes a little bit beyond clinical discretion. Um, you know, But for the most part, APA just kind of leaves it up to um, clinicians, and NAS for the most part, does as well. And most state guidelines follow APA or, or NAS. So really it's kind of up to clinical discretion about when a test becomes too old. Now, does the Flynn effect play a component? Um, most likely the Flynn effect is one of those things where we kind of have quasi laws that we kind of somewhat can predict what's going to happen. Um, you know, as IQ scores, you know, change or, um, you know, as individuals um, gets compared to older and older and more obsolete norms, they're not quite laws because sometimes you get, you know, scores, uh, higher than expected you know so i can't say it's a law in that this always happens but they're quasi laws but we have laws without a really good theory about why it's happening um so you know typically you know the stages of science is that you have these observations and you develop laws then from the laws you kind of come up with these you know theories really don't have a very good theory that explains the flint effect we have lots of different hypotheses you know nutrition or um, um, you know, uh, changes in in you know the education environment, um, media, um, you know, to have all these different theories um, trying to explain these quasi laws, but really don't have a very good um, theory that kind of in- incorporates all of what we see with these score changes. Um, and so, yes, the Flint effect is probably, um, you know, contributing to um, um, score differences. So, if you're using the DOS uh, the DOS two now, the scores are probably a bit inflated. Um how much they're inflated, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, if you need the flame effect literature say it's in about point three IQ points a year. Again, that's a very rough average. So I can't say that universally applies to every instrument. So the DOS two um, you know, is probably inflated. I don't think that the DOS two, I don't think that the DOS three is I don't know if it's going to happen or, or not. I've heard different things that the Stanford, Bonet, I know the sixth edition is, is, is in um, progress. We just had um, Gail Royd here at the, at Baylor a, a few weeks ago. And this, and the sixth edition is, is, is being developed a, a, as we speak. So that should be out, um, you know, within a, within a, a few years, um, you know, but even with Stanford, 5 five using that Now the scores, they're probably also a little bit inflated. Um, but I can't tell you how much that's the problem is that we kind of have these quasi laws that you can, you can probably say that the scores are inflated, but we really don't know by how much. Um, And so until we get a a better understanding about what the Flynn effect is, and we have a good theory that, you know, can explain it, um, we're just kind of at the stage now where we just say that it's a quasi-law that the Flynn effect, you know, exists, but we really can't, um, you know, predict its exact nature um, or its exact effect. And we really can't explain why it, it happens. So we really can't control for it. I I have a question about
2: um, norm sampling. Um, You know, it it dawned on me a while ago uh, that when a test, you know, uses their norm sample, standardizes their test, they obviously don't have, uh, you know, a a thousand students in grade two with a representative sample of, you know, the United States, uh, uh, you know, every, you know, 100 students at grade 2.1, 100 students at grade 2.2, 100 students at grade 2.3, and so on across, you know, uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, so are they looking at averages and then projecting across grade levels?
3: How does, how does that work, um, you know, when creating the norm sample? Um, so uh, y- y- yes, they typically try to get, you know, X number of students w- within these particular ranges, um, and whether they do it by, you know, ages or grades or, or what have you, there they try to get, you know, a number of students, you know, in there. And then they try to figure out, well, kind of where's their plateaus in there. So, you know, let's say that, you know, kindergarten, you know, first month to kindergarten, third month, there seems to be very little difference. So we'll call that, you know, a group. Then kindergarten, maybe third month, the fifth month, whatever, there's very little difference um, you know, there. Um, and so you're right, they're not getting oodles of students in there. So part of that's gonna be constrained by how much variability is there within scores. And part of it is how many um, folks do we actually have in this, um, you know, particular grade level. Um, so, you know, I think if you look at the, um, was it the, um, the, the, Fifer assessment of reading and math, there's very few folks within this particular grade. It's just hard. I mean, it's extremely hard to get a nasty representative sample, you know, within, um, you know, that are, you know, representative as far as, you know, age, race, you know, SES, sex, you know, all these different demographic characteristics that we want to map onto a national sample, it's very hard, it's very expensive to get, you know, folks, you know, in there. And so part of those, you know, norms are going to are based on, you know, how many folks they actually are able to gather. And then as well as, you know, where does development, you know, tend to, you know, change versus plateau a bit there. Um, so, you know, what kind of determines what those sample sizes are there, it's a mixture of factors, mixture of, um, you know, a theory of the attribute change, as well as just um, resources available.
2: Okay. So uh, let's say, you know, thinking of the for assessment of reading, which I, I use, um, should we be uh, more skeptical of tests that have smaller norm samples?
3: Yes. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if the goal is to say, you know, um, Susie's performance compared to, you know, her quote-unquote same age or in the Pfeiffer, the same grade, um, you know, peers, well, if we're going to say same grade, then you really want to know what a typical performance looks like, you know, for this particular grade across the, the U.S. Um, you know, so if you're wanting to have a normative comparison, then yes, if if the sampling, um, of the uh, norming sample um, is not very representative or is, you know, quite small um, then, yes, there should be a lot of caution involved in interpreting that. Now, if you look at it from more of a functional perspective, you can say, that, oh, well, they can do this particular operation, this particular operation. Then that's really the, the norming sample really doesn't have that much of, a, of an influence there. Um, but if you wanted to make national comparisons, then, yes, the norming sample makes a huge amount of, uh, of difference. Um-
0: how much, how, how big of a sample, I mean, it's probably a hard question to ask, like how how large the sample can be, but I, I feel like we talked to somebody, and I don't know if it was on air or off air, and it might have been Dr. Reynolds who said that, you know, there comes a point where you don't need to go any bigger, that it's just kind of for show almost. Um does that make sense or is it? no?
3: It, it does. I mean, if you look at um, you know, um, um, polling for you know, um, opinion polls like you know, Gallup or whatever, there they don't typically have large sample sizes. Um, the idea is that you want to get a sample size that maps on to getting the standard error where you want it to be. So, typically, the sample size is selected, um, ideally, it would be to get um, the standard error to be as small as you wanted it to be, um, you know, because you know, at some point. If you have, you know, 200 over 250, the standard error really doesn't change that much. You no, know, but, but you know, 25 versus 75, the standard error shrinks quite a bit, um, you know. So it depends on how large you want that standard error um, or how large you want the confidence intervals, um, you know, to to be there. And that just kind of depends on, you know, um, what you expect the score variability to be um, and how much, you know, variance you think that, you know, the attribute actually has within these, you know, particular age um, um, uh, um, categories or grade categories there. So, but typically the sample size, part of the decision there is getting a standard error of a a certain size. That's why
0: Gallup
3: can make these huge and as we can see, not always correct, but these huge, you know, extrapolations based on relatively small samples because, you know, they, first of all, they do a random sampling. And second of all, they figured out this is the size we need to have a standard error of this, this small. Interesting.
0: Um So I'm going to go to my next question, if that's okay. (laughs) Um, DD criteria. Some states say, you know, 30% in two or more areas or something. They give a percentage, 20% delay, 30% delay. How do you do that when you're getting standard scores? Like, how do you do a percent delay? Does that make any sense? I've seen people take the age equivalent and do 30% from that. I've seen people say, no, you have to use something like play-based assessment or a a measure that gives, you know, months, you know, you get – students performing at a six month level and they're you know two years old and so you do a percent delay from from that how do you does
3: that actually i mean unless the uh, state has codified that within their you know legal guidelines about this is what we're defining percent delay is it just makes absolutely no sense to do that Um, i mean we don't have um uh, i mean i would say that most of our instruments are ordinal at best you know we probably don't even have interval scale but what they're asking kind of for there is more on the ratio level there. And it just makes no sense to, to talk about, oh, this, you know, is a 30% delay. How on earth would you be able to, um, you know, note what that is? Um, be, that really kind of um, preclude or really um, presumes that you have some type of ratio, um, you know, type of uh, units, or first of all, you have units and then you have some type of ratio scale there. And we just don't have that um, for most psychological instruments there. So, um, so I mean, unless the states are going to codify that in their, in their laws and they're talking about a particular percent delay, you're going to see oodles and oodles of variation across that because there really is no, um, way to do that well w- with what we have now.
0: Okay. That, that makes me feel better that I'm not crazy. Cause I always look at that like, and some states I know say, you know, 30% or two standard deviations and do it like that. And that makes more sense to me, but yeah, the the states that just have
3: the 30% thing, um, doesn't, I, I Again, that's kind of where the disconnect is between like, you know, the legal component versus the science component there. I'm sure from the legislator's perspective, there's some advocate or whatever telling them that it makes sense, but, um, you know, we're not physics and we do not have that type of precision yet in our, in, in our measurements.
0: Mm-hmm. And anybody watching to, um, to check out the, the last, the first part one of the stats where, um, talking about the ordinal and interval scales and whatnot. So that was a, then you hit on that again. That's a big one. Um, okay. And then I think I've got another question. The, the WISC, the WISC um, norms and the digital, the iPads. Um, I, I think that it was, how does that work? Cause I know that they didn't necessarily do a full normative sample with the digital administration. Is there concerns for that?
3: Um, there's concerns in that, uh, um, they're wanting to say that the paper and pencil scores are fully, um, um exchangeable with the digital scores. Now, if I just want to say that we have a digital version, we have a paper and pencil version, they both give you values, but it's like, you know, form a versus form B, they're not the exact same thing. And so, you know, treat them as being independent instruments. treat them like you would have like the WISC five and the WISC five B. They're two separate instruments that are both, you know, assessing similar attributes. That's fine. Nothing wrong there. But when they say that, oh, the digital administration, 100 there means the exact same thing as 100 on the paper and pencil administration. That requires a very strong um, type of evidence. Um, If you look in the educational measurement literature, they talk about um, equating scores and all that's involved in making the argument that two scores are exchangeable. And as far as I know, right, and this is just based on, because they have have no peer-reviewed research that, um, you know, has, has investigated this, um, um, at least from the the site. The in fact, I don't think anything on Google Scholar is up there yet that has, that's looked at this. Um, Pearson does have a couple of technical reports online, but only thing that they um, tell you in the technical reports are average differences, and average differences really don't quite cut it. Um, it's very akin to when you're looking at, um, diagnostic um, um, situation, you say, oh, that there's an average difference in scores between these two groups. Um, that's not sufficient. What you want to look at is like the sensitivity and specificity, you know, um, treatment call kind of talked about this, you know, t- about 20 some odd years ago, when you're looking at utility of an instrument. So you don't want to see other average differences, but, um, you know, as uh, do the scores actually able to um, are you able to classify individuals um, you know, into the right categories based on based on the score. So very similar with the um, digital versus paper and pencil administration, you know, Pearson makes the argument that on average, the score differences are relatively small for most of those subtests. But that doesn't, um, is not sufficient because you could have situations where, you know, some folks that six or seven points, you know, um, higher on one versus the other, and some folks that are six or seven points lower on one than the other, then they kind of cancel each other out in the aggregate. Um And so until, you know, Pearson actually does some type of equating, um, you know, studies where they actually look to see, you know, what what you want to find is that, um, you know, the equating function to go from paper and pencil to digital is basically one, that meaning that you don't really need to change the values. Until they can um, provide that type of evidence, I would say that the jury is very much out about whether those scores are exchangeable. In fact, I'd say the default stance should be that they're not exchangeable until they can be proven uh, otherwise. Um, so, if someone needs a dissertation or thesis project,
2: mm-hmm.
3: best of my knowledge, there's not a lick of things published out uh, by folks that don't have a conflict of interest there. Um, so, that would be—I can almost guarantee it would get published um, somewhere um, if you would, if you were to do that. So, anybody that needs a project to do, there you go.
0: Yeah, and I think that's super important that that people start to do that and are doing that that type of research because we just. You know, all of our knowledge seems to come from Pearson or who's ever, you know, publishing the, the test, and we don't have that much to go on. And it's kind of disappointing as a practitioner that most of us practitioners just say, okay, you know, here's the new test and go off and give it and don't have a clue about. What kind of goes on behind the scenes and that whole thing last time about the, uh, the interval and the, the ordinal scales that maybe we can't be comparing these numbers at all. And that's, of course
3: concern. <laughs> uh, and then you have the added issue there about, you know, the conflicts of, of interest, you know, there that Pearson wants to sell a product very similar. I used to work in a, um, um, a mental health uh, um, inpatient unit a long, long, long time ago. And we had all these pharmaceutical reps that would come in and give, you know, Paxil balloons and pillows or whatever. I mean, they're trying to sell a product, you know, I mean, I don't want to say there is are or lying to you saying that something that the medicine is doing something that it couldn't actually do, but their job was to sell you something. They needed to make a, you know, a quota. Um, the people at Pearson, they're trying to sell you something. They need to make these quotas there. And so they're going to have a conflict of interest. I can almost guarantee you that nothing's going to come out of Pearson that's going to say anything negative about any of the instruments um, you know, that they're selling. And so um, what you basically kind of get is this file drawer effect. Whenever you have conflict of interest, that anything that doesn't quite show what they want it to show, it's kind of going to get buried. and It's not going to see the, the, the light of day there. Um, and so what only you're going to see on the website are things that are salutatory for, um, you know, their instruments. And so you're exactly right. We need, um, you know, folks without conflicts of interest to do this type of research to say, are these scores actually exchangeable or, or not?
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. All right. I know i, I most of my questions, my questions took up a whole lot of time. But is there anything else that um, before we wrap up that you want to hit on either from your PowerPoint or just from things that you think that practitioners may be watching this? Should know about their scores uh, and our daily kind of practices. If we're kind of forgetting about our psychs, our stats class, and maybe we need to forget about our stats class if they're giving us not super good information. But anything you want to, any words of wisdom on
3: about the um, you know the the um, I guess the 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 main point here and some of the stuff in the slides. I I'll give you the slides that can be on you know um, on the on on the site there. Even if I don't go over this, but is not to reify. Um, the, the values from these instruments, not to think that they actually have more meaning than they actually do. We kind of get accustomed in our math class to thinking that, you know, a value of 100 has certain properties, that it's twice the amount of 50, um, you, know, that, you, know, um, you know, that 100 to 105 is the same amount of distance as 110 is to 115. We kind of have these um, understandings about numbers and then we think that they automatically apply to the scores from our instruments and they don't necessarily, um, it's up to the test developers, the test publishers to give you the information to, about whether these, the, those numbers actually have um, properties that we wanting them to have, or, or they're telling you that they have, you know, whether um, it, it, um, the scores lend themselves to making profiles or looking at, um, you know, ipsative type of comparisons. It's up to the publishers to provide that information. If they don't provide that Um, Don't assume that properties exist for those numbers simply because we're accustomed to numbers Um, and rely on, you know, empirical evidence on, um, you know, conceptual qualitative analysis of the attributes before, um, you know, delving in or or before making, um, you know, interpretations that the numbers don't necessarily warrant. I think we're always going to be fine. uh, Well, most of the time we're going to be fine with just saying um, an interval interpretation our qualitative interpretation is probably not going to, you know, serve you wrong to go much beyond that. Um, you probably should, there probably should be some type of evidence where you can say, if you're called to a due process hearing or something else, you'd say that, Oh yes, this is the evidence I used to make the, um, you know, decision, um, you know, that these, um, score differences actually had meaning to them. Um, you know, in the, in the psychometric world, you know, that's called reification. Now that you're putting, um, you know, um, 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 information, Are uh, you putting, you know, meaning into numbers that don't actually exist. So try to, um, you know, don't try to, to reify things until there's sufficient evidence. You know, I call it my class premature reification. You know, don't do that premature reification there. Wait until there's evidence before you say that, oh, yes, these numbers actually map onto an attribute, or these numbers actually can, it doesn't make sense for you know, us to look at score differences
1: with them. That's helpful. That's really great. I've been checking for anybody's last minute questions or comments out there. So this is your absolute last chance if you're listening and you have a thought or question for us. Um, and just to remind everyone, we will be back next um, on December 16th with Heidi McDonald, who is going to talk about a school psychologist's words to live by um, uh, especially helpful for early career folks or um, people just entering the field. So we hope you'll join us then. Sounds good. Thank you so
0: much for coming on uh, tonight and uh, for a second episode too. So we, we appreciate it. It's
1: awesome.
3: Thank you for having me again. I, I, I very much enjoy this and enjoy the podcast that you all are, are producing. It's very, very quality work.
1: Thank you so Thank you. much. It's a great
2: discussion. We appreciate your thoughts.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, good night, everybody. Good night, all.
2: Bye.